Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It is very good to be back here. I think maybe I mentioned that last Sunday, but I was thinking as I was sitting there this morning after Sunday school that about preaching in Colorado. I preached at a congregation in Colorado. I knew one person there besides my family, and I didn't know them very that well. And uh, it's easy to preach to a group of people you don't know. You don't have to worry about what they think. You're going to be leaving, and you don't really have to worry about what they think after you leave, and you don't have to worry if you step on their toes because you don't know who they are that well. But I'd rather preach to you. I see some of your humanity. You see some of mine. You might hear me say something and you wonder, why is he saying that? Doesn't he see what's happening in his own life? Doesn't he see what he needs to do in relation to that? That's okay. Come tell me about it. Because I love to be home with my family. Even though you know my humanity. I'm thankful for our church here. We've been going through a study on separation. Separation and nonconformity. And I have been having us as a congregation say some verses. I suddenly realized this morning that I hadn't looked back to see whether it was King James or New King James this morning. And I had to scramble a little bit. But I'm just going to read the verses this morning and I want you to listen carefully to the words of these verses. And especially in the context of living in the light of the Lord's return. These all, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. To me, those are very powerful verses on separation, and that's why I'm going over them so much. What are we really looking for? We started out our study with the big picture, some of the big things. Framework of good and evil, and truth and error, and the two kingdoms. And from there we moved into more into the individual separation of the individual. We looked at the distinct identity of the believer and how that's distinctly different 
from that of the unbeliever. And then we also looked at the transformation that needs to happen or or happens in the believer's life that makes him different from those around him. Those first couple lessons were largely focused on the work of God, who He is and what He does in our lives and what He gives to us. Today we'll be moving more into the area that is our responsibility in relation to our separation. And I want to consider this morning two basic postures of the heart that are key to which side we are on in this area of separation. Just to think about what I mean by posture. Our posture is the way that we present ourselves or place ourselves in the world. So, if in a physical sense, an explanation of that would be a defensive posture is someone who is ready, experiencing or ready for something to happen in their lives that's going to be difficult or challenging or harmful. So they they have a defensive posture. When a boxer advances in the ring, he has a defensive posture. He's protecting himself. He has his hands up to protect himself. That's a defensive posture because of the way that he knows or sees that that things are going to happen in his life. A relaxed posture says, I'm comfortable. I don't expect problems. I don't expect trouble. I'm comfortable with the situation. I don't think I'm going to be harmed. Those are physical postures. But as free moral agents, we have control. God has given us control of the posture of our heart. Our heart also has a posture. And the Bible warns us repeatedly about the posture of the fallen humanity and calls us to take the posture of the kingdom. So I want to start with that, the idea of the posture of of the fallen world. In the garden, there was a descriptive term used for the serpent. It said he was subtle. And the idea of of something that's subtle is something that's partially hidden. The serpent had an agenda when he came to Eve. And that agenda, he wanted to present in somewhat of a hidden manner. So he wanted to to get her to do something without fully exposing what the results would be. His purpose, we learn later in Scripture, was that he wanted the place of the Most High. And he wanted that place in the life of Adam and Eve. And so he had an agenda to take God's place. And that agenda was driven by pride. The heart of the serpent is pride and rebellion. 
That's his heart. That's the posture of his heart. And ever since the fall, pride flows naturally from our fallen humanity. Our self-preserving nature. And because we have that bent already, we swallow easily his agenda. I want to look at two biblical stories that show us, give us light, give us vision into what that fallen state, that foundational pride in our lives, that posture of pride does. The first one is in Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east and they, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. That they, and they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us, make, let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. Now nothing will be restrained from them, even, sorry, Nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. The key verse that I want us to get here is verse 4. Let us make us a name. They wanted to give themselves, to build themselves a name, an identity, a reputation. They wanted to build a reputation that their work could get them to heaven. They wanted to build a reputation that they had control of their future. They wanted to build a tower that would reach to heaven. They wanted to keep from being scattered on the earth. At the heart of that was pride. And God looked at that and He said that when man is left to himself to fully pursue his pride, his imaginations can be fully coming up with the right word. His imaginations can be fully expressed when he is left to follow his pride. To live in his pride. Pride, brothers and sisters, calls us to want to build a reputation for ourselves. 
And it will creep in. It can creep in. And it does creep in very subtly. Hardly noticeable. Even under the good things sometimes that we aspire to do. It's very subtle. We need God's help to see and our brothers and sisters help to see the pride in our lives and to root that out. The second story that I want to look at is the story of Sodom. I'm not going to read that story from Genesis. When we look at that story, that story is very sobering to me. It's a tremendous outpouring of God's wrath. God's judgment on sin. There wasn't even ten good men in that city. There was a lady named Rosaria who was a professor at Syracuse University. She was a feminist and a lesbian activist, but she had two qualities that caused her to run into a problem. She was honest in her research and she was willing to be wrong in order to grow. While doing research for a book she was writing, she came in contact with a couple who showed her a side of Christianity that she had never seen. She started reading the Bible and was converted. As she tells her story, she did not understand at first why homosexuality was a sin. But she looked at the story of but as she looked at the story of Sodom she saw it as the clearest outpouring of God's judgment on sin anywhere in scripture and she was stopped short by a passage in Ezekiel so I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 48 as I live saith the Lord God Sodom thy sister hath not done, nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this is the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, as in her and her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good." Certainly, we would never reach the place where our lives would be filled with the debauchery that Sodom was filled with when that judgment came on them, when fire came down from heaven. But that's not the first thing that God puts His finger on when He says this was the sin of Sodom. The first thing He put His finger on was pride. The second thing he put his finger on was materialism. And then pleasure seeking. And then lack of mercy. And then other abominations. You see, pride has a progression. What's the condition of Sodom when that fire fell from heaven the condition of Sodom was a condition that had begun with the root of pride. The posture of pride. 
and it took a progression. Pride is our source of sin. But don't miss what God is saying to Jerusalem in this passage. To Jerusalem, He says, Sodom and her daughters have not done as badly as you have done because you knew better and you did it anyway. Because you knew you should humble yourselves before me and you chose not to and you went your own path. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 10 about those who will not hear or receive the truth. He says it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those who rejected the truth of the gospel. And whosoever, Matthew 10, 14, and whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when ye depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. This is convicting to me. We must make sure that the posture of our hearts is not the posture of pride. So what about the posture of the kingdom of God? No, there's something else I want to say. Because I, think this is, I think this is interesting and it sheds light into the character and the heart of God. The story of Sodom is very near the chronological center of the Bible. So if you look at the 6,000 plus years of time, and you look at the biblical story, the story of Sodom is very near the center. But think about how close it is to the front of the Bible. Okay? There's a reason for that. Because the Bible is a book of redemption. And that first part of Genesis that tells us about the beginning and about the fall and about the progression that happened after the fall, it shows us how far man goes when pride is at the root of his life. And then God used the rest of the Bible to show us the plan of salvation and redemption from our pride. We serve a God who wants to give us the positive story. He wants to tell us about what is good and about His plan of redemption. And so you have Abraham beginning just before Sodom and you have that flowing through the rest, that story flowing through the rest of the Bible. And what does God say to Abraham that starts that journey? Separate yourself from your land and from your family and go to a place that I'll tell you of. And that's the verses that we read from, or reflection on the verses we read from Hebrews. So what about the posture of the kingdom? Well, the prophets kept talking about something. They kept talking about a time that would come when the Lord would build a house 
that there was a king coming to set up a kingdom and that that kingdom would fill the whole earth and that this king would sit on the throne of David. It has this idea, David was a very powerful king, very victorious king, had this idea this is going to be a very powerful, victorious ruler. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And now, 2,000 years after his life, his kingdom does stretch across the nations and around the world. So he must have been a mighty man. But think about his life. Though all this stuff was prophesied about him, and he was those things, his life was hardly kingly. He was born to and grew up as a common laborer. He was ignored and hated by most of the important people of his time. He died a brutal death as a common criminal. What's extraordinary about that? Why do we today, 2,000 years later, remember Jesus Christ in this service this morning? Why have 50 or so people gathered together here just in this building, in this area, to worship Jesus? What was it about his life? I believe it was the posture of Jesus' heart that was the signature of who he is and who he was. Our signature is something that identifies us. And there was something that identified Jesus and identifies his followers that's unmistakable. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He had the right to be everything in this world that he that was prophesied of him. That kind of kingly stature and victory and control. He had the right to be all of those things. But instead, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He stepped down, down, down. in humility, and he left his signature, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Come unto me and take my yoke, the yoke of a meek and lowly heart. Take my pattern 
humility, obedience, joy. And why do I say joy? Philippians 2, the pattern is humility. He humbled himself and became obedient. And he, he to the death of the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Humility, obedience, joy. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The power of the life of Christ came from his humility. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Peter walked with Jesus. He saw his life. And then he writes in 1 Peter 4 about this example of a suffering servant Lord. And then in chapter 5, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You don't have to wait until your life is wrecked until your life is on the rocks to change things. Peter tells us, humble yourself. Jesus voluntarily stepped down. We are called to voluntarily take the posture of humility. We're called to make that choice to humble ourselves. Do we have a Tower of Babel? Do we have a reputation? Do we need to demolish that reputation? Why would we want to be great and special anyway? Well, we want to be great and special because deep down inside, we understand that there is value in each life. We realize that life has value and that it should be lived meaningfully. But when, as long as we are self-centered, we see that value primarily in ourselves. And so we want to promote ourselves because we think that that's where the most value lies. How do we humble ourselves? How do we clothe ourselves with humility? I just want to emphasize that to be beneficial, humility has to be voluntary. God has set up a cause and effect. A man's pride will bring him low. In Luke 20, verse 18, it says, Whosoever shall fall on that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. If we do not choose humility, we will one day be humbled. But that humility will, know, will not be beneficial because it will be too late. It will be our destruction. So why spend a whole session of teaching, a whole message on 
the idea of humility in relation to separation. Well, it's pretty simple. There are two masters, Satan and Jesus. Satan rules with pride. Jesus rules with humility. There are two agendas. Satan wants to take God's place. Jesus wants to give God His proper place. Reputation is extremely fundamental to the way that we look at the world. How we view ourselves. Do you view yourself as what's important? Your reputation as what's important? Or do you view God's reputation as what's important? Is your life about you or is it about God and who He is? Are you living in a conscious recognition that if you claim the name of Christian, that you carry the name of Jesus and so you carry His reputation? I told you that story about that lady. I'm listening to a book that she wrote right now. Brothers and sisters, I am horrified by the way Christians have profaned the name of Jesus to the world. And I don't have to look too far in my life before I see how I have profaned the name of Jesus in my life when I fail to show love, compassion, kindness, the truth that I should to the world around me. Who am I really living for? Am I living in obedience? Or am I living in rebellion? I am a servant either way. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do I want to grow? If I'm not living in humility, I will not grow. Humility is necessary for growth. Humility is the platform of God's power. If we're going to truly live separated lives, we're going to have to be humble. There is no other way to show God to the world than to be humble people. As I thought about the sins of Sodom, and I thought about my life, I thought about conservative Anabaptist church in America, we better be careful that we are not proud that we are not materialistic that we are not pleasure seekers what does genuine humility look like well humility I've really always really appreciated this description from brother Keith Crider humility is not thinking less of myself it is seeing myself as God sees me God created us with value but not value that usurps His position. It's value within His position. 
Humility is not a passive, careless life. It's an active pursuit of learning and growing like a little child. It is concerned about building the reputation of God and of others, not your own. Humility makes the true Christian separate from the world in two primary ways. One of them is that he is separate in how he perceives greatness. What is great to the Christian is different than what is great to the person of this world. True greatness in the Christian worldview is to be a servant and to serve others and to lift others up above ourselves. It changes his goals and ideals. The second way is that humility is the posture from which he views every aspect of life. And so, it is the guide to all of his actions in every circumstance. For the person of this world, the things that guide his life are self-preservation and self-promotion. The title of the message, title I used some time ago, but I treated it fairly differently. So I didn't give you the title at the beginning. The title is The Genius of Humility. And I'd like to answer the question that that asks, which is, what is the genius of humility? And the genius of humility is that through stepping down, we reach the heights. So may God give us the grace to humble ourselves. May we choose to humble ourselves before Him and make ourselves available for Him, for His purposes, for His work, for His glory. God bless you.